you. The, um, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, uh, who is soon to be beatified, God willing, uh, once said that applause at the beginning of a talk is a sign of faith, applause in the middle of a talk is a sign of hope, and applause at the end of the talk is a sign of charity. So <laughs> at least, at least we, I can see that we have faith here. In the 13th century, there was a nun in Belgium named Juliana of Liège who had a great devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, and she is reported to have had a, a dream, a vision, in which she saw the moon brightly lit up, but with a dark spot on it. And she was given to understand that this vision she saw represented the church, shining in splendor, reflecting the glory of God, but this dark spot that she saw on the moon was something that was missing in the church, which God wanted to, to bring into being. Uh, and this missing part of the church's splendor was a feast that would honor explicitly the mystery of the Most Holy Eucharist, that would direct the church's attention uh, in a more focused way to giving thanks for the mystery of the Eucharist and to adoring it. And so she began to petition uh, at first the, the local bishops and ultimately the universal church for the establishment of such a feast. And the church granted her request in, in 1264, uh, the Pope issued a bull establishing what we know as the Feast of Corpus Christi. Uh, it was established for the Thursday following Trinity Sunday. Um, it's celebrated in m many places today now on the Sunday following Trinity Sunday, but this was the, the beginning of this Feast of Corpus Christi in 1264. And at that same time that this was instituted, some of the church's greatest minds were invited to compose the texts for this new feast, the texts of the divine office, the texts of the Holy Mass. It's reported that both St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, the great lights of the Dominican and Franciscan orders respectively, composed offices and, and masses to, to be used for the feast. And there was a sort of competition, I suppose, to, to see who, who, whose, whose proposal was going to be accepted. And the story goes that at one point, St. Bonaventure asked St. Thomas, well, would you let me see what you've, what you've written? What, what have you prepared? And St. Thomas showed him the, the text that he had prepared for the office in the Mass, and St. Bonaventure was, was so overwhelmed by it that he went back and took up what he had prepared and ripped it apart and threw it in the fire and said, I'm not even going to try to compete with what, what, what you've done. Um, it's a, a pity, I think, because I'm sure St. Bonaventure's office for Corpus Christi would have been very beautiful as well. But the one that the Church adopted is... is attributed to St. Thomas Aquinas, the common doctor of the church uh, with regard to theology, but also, uh, as we discover in the text of that feast, an amazing uh, poet and mystic who expresses um, not just in precise theology, as in the Summa Theologiae, but also in beautiful poetry, the fullness of the church's faith regarding the Most Holy Eucharist. Uh, so I tell you all of this because one of the aspects of the text that St. Thomas composed for the liturgy of Corpus Christi is the sequence. A sequence is a, a piece of poetry which in the liturgy of the Mass is placed before the Gospel. Uh, traditionally it follows the Alleluia. The Alleluia has a very elaborate melody with, with many, many notes and then at a certain point on, on certain great feasts the Alleluia then transitions into this more extended piece of poetry that comments in a fuller way on the mystery of the day. 
There are sequences for Easter, for Pentecost. In the Middle Ages, there were many, many sequences. Uh, we only have a few of them that we use today, but the church still uses the sequence for Corpus Christi, which is called the Lauda Sion. Uh, it's a very long piece of poetry. Uh, it has a very um, beautiful melody, which goes through constant variations on a theme, you could say, as, as the, the text explores different aspects of the Eucharistic mystery. And uh, those of you who received the, the bags when you came in, I think should have uh, a little handout, a booklet that has the sequence, the Laodiceon. It's five pages, and then uh, the remaining pages, you have space that you can take notes if you like. Um, but I, I have this here so that you can follow what you're about to hear. So the, the Benedictine way of, of doing theology is... Uh, always nourished by the sacred liturgy. Uh, it flows out of the liturgy and it flows into the liturgy. And that's, I think, something that uh, the organizers of this conference appreciate as well. As was said at the beginning of the conference, the, the center of the day is the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And so, uh, in that same spirit, I'd like to begin uh, this presentation on the Holy Eucharist with uh, having the, the brothers who have come with me sing the Laudation, the sequence of Corpus Christi. And then I will proceed to unpack everything that St. Thomas has, in, has very concisely put in this beautiful piece of poetry. So you have there in front of you both the, the Latin text with the music and then uh, the English text of each verse so that you can follow along as, um, as we, we begin um, this reflection on the Holy Eucharist with the singing of the Laodiceum. Laura ducem et pastorem minimis et cantigis, quantum pares antum aure, quia maiorum laude, nec laudare supicis, laudis teba speciari, Panis vivus et vitalis, odie promoitur. in sacre mensagere, turre fratrum duodere, datum nonam digitur. Sit claus Mentis jubilatio, viese in solemnis agitur, in quamense prima recolitur, uius institutio. In ac mensa nobil regis, novum pasca nobel legis, passe vetus termina. Letus tatem nobitas, umbram fugat veritas, notem muxeliminat. Quod in cena Christus gestit, faciendum hoc expressit in sui memoria. Docti sacris institutis, palem virum in saludis, consecramus ossia. Dogma datur Christianis, ol in carnem transitanis, 
The 24 verses of the hymn that we just heard, uh, we can divide it up into a couple of different 
sections as we as we reflect on it and what St. Thomas is presenting there. And the first six verses or so give us a sort of introduction, uh, beginning with a sort of outburst of praise and then telling us what it is that we're about to consider. So that's sort of the the exposition setting up what it is that we're going to be to be talking about. And then he proceeds in verses seven through twenty to go through every aspect one might want to treat of the mystery of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, in a very succinct way, he, he sort of, we could say, takes all of the things that he discusses uh, in his theological writings and gives us a couple of verses very succinctly summarizing each one. And then finally, in the last four verses, he goes back to um, less systematic reflection and um, more poetry and prayer and concluding with um, an invocation to our Lord, uh, a petition which uh, rounds off the whole thing and brings it to a, to a conclusion. So the, the sequence itself has this, this movement of praise and then reflection on the mystery that we're contemplating, and that leads back to more praise and, and prayer. And this is a model, I think, for, for all of theology. Praise is the, ultimately the, the, the most suitable context for theology because it's the most fitting response of man to what God reveals to us about himself. All of theology has praise as its end. That's what so man is created for. It's what every Christian's uh, ultimate vocation is, to, to praise and glorify God in this life and then to glorify him eternally in the life to come. All of our reflection upon the faith should lead us to a deeper love of God, leading us to praise him and glorify him in this life and in the life to come. And so St. Thomas begins his treatment of the Holy Eucharist with the word praise, Lauda on salvatorum. And he says, in imnis et canticis, praise thy leader and shepherd in hymns and canticles. Why in hymns and canticles? Because, as St. Augustine says, cantare amantis est, to sing is proper to one who loves. Music is not something incidental to the church's worship. Uh, mu music is an integral part of the church's worship because music is the natural expression of the soul's love for God and of the love of the church, the bride of Christ, for her divine bridegroom. Um, it's not just a sort of um, nice decoration that we, that we use to spice up worship a little bit, but rather mu music is itself um, part, part of the, the soul of, of the church's worship. In the second verse, St. Thomas says, Quantum potes tantum aude, as much as thou canst, so much darest thou, for he is above all praise, nor art thou able to praise him enough. One can never say enough about the Eucharist because it is the sacrament of sacraments. It's the sacrament to which all the other sacraments are directed. It is the source and summit, as the Second Vatican Council says, of, of, the, of the Christian life. And so we can never sufficiently praise the Eucharist. Even if the hymn were to go on for 48 verses, for 96 verses, it would never be able to say enough. And so St. Thomas begins his reflection upon the mystery of the Eucharist by reminding us that everything that he says is only going to scratch the surface of it, that, that we, we can never adequately praise this mystery of the faith. Then in verse 3, he goes on to get a little more specific and say, well, what is it exactly that we're going to be praising for in, in the rest of this hymn? Today there is given us a special theme of praise, the bread both living and life-giving, panis vivus et vitalis. So this brings us straight to one of the most important passages on the Holy Eucharist, John chapter 6. Our Lord says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
The Eucharist is alive. It's not just a thing. It's not something static. This is something that there's been um, a lot of misunderstanding about it in, in certain circles in the last several decades in the church. There, there was a, uh, a time, at least, when it was common to say, well, the presence of Christ in the tabernacle, you know, when Mass is concluded, that's something static. And so we, we, we shouldn't uh, give a prominent place to the tabernacle in the church because, um, because that's just static. What we're really interested in is, is during Mass, that's, that's dynamic. There's something going on there. But, but the, the Eucharist in the tabernacle, that's, that's static. Uh, and so it's, you know, it should be, shouldn't be emphasized so much. This is um, a distinction that's foreign to, to the mind of the church. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI um, addressed this m- many times in his pontificate that whether it's during Mass or whether it's after Mass, the consecrated species, which has become the body of our Lord, is always something alive. It's always something dynamic. Our Lord is never, never just there as a sort of thing. He's a living person. And so the Eucharist is the panis vivus. It is the living bread. And this is why adoration of the Blessed Sacrament is so fitting and so important. Even after Mass is concluded, the sacred host is not just a thing to be casually carried about or put away somewhere, but it is a living presence to be adored and marveled at. And it's a presence which continues to act upon us when we encounter our Lord in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, He is alive, and so he can act upon us, and we can interact with him because he is the panis vivus, the living bread. And he uses another adjective, too. The living, the panis vivus et vitalis. Vivus is alive, and vitalis is life-giving. So the Eucharist is a life-giving bread because it is what the life of our souls depends upon. Our Lord says this in John chapter 6. He says, as the Father, who, as the, Father the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the man who eats me will live because of me. Just as... Jesus draws his life from the Father in an, in an analogous way. The Christian who feeds upon the Lord's body and blood draws his life from our Lord. He shares in divine life. While, even while living in this world, we share already in the divine life, which we will participate in fully in the life to come. So this is what it means to say that the Holy Eucharist is the, the, the living and life-giving bread, panis vivus et vitalis. And the fourth verse, which it is not to be doubted was given to the assembly of the brethren, 12 in number, at the table of the Holy Supper. Our Lord instituted the Blessed Sacrament in the Last Supper by saying, do this in memory of me. And the Council of Trent defined that in so doing, he also instituted the sacred priesthood. Uh, these two sacraments were instituted in one and the same moment. They're, they're inseparable, uh, the, the Holy Eucharist and the priesthood. In giving us the sacrament of his body and blood, the Lord also gave us ministers who would carry this out until he comes again. The priesthood exists for the sake of the Eucharist. That's, that's its, its raison d'etre, the, the reason for which, for which it was instituted. And all of the other things that a priest does are ordered to that. Um, it's not so common anymore, but there, there used to be, especially in, in monasteries and religious communities, priests who were what was called ordained simplex. Um, that is to say that they, they were priests who didn't have faculties to do a lot of the things that priests normally do. So hearing confessions, uh, preaching, those are things which um, 
a priest by ordination has a certain power to do, but he can't uh, exercise that power without uh, a, a faculty that's given to him by, by the bishop or by his ecclesiastical superior that allows him to, to validly carry out uh, the sacrament of penance, absolving sins, uh, that, that permits him to preach um, or as the, for instance, the parish priest of, uh, in a parish to have the, the jurisdiction to witness marriages, things like this. All of these things are important functions of the priesthood, but the essence of the priesthood is the offering of the Holy Mass, the confecting of the sacrament of the Lord's body and blood. And even if a priest had none of the other faculties of doing things that priests do, he would be no less a priest for all of that if he is able to offer the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So the, this... Uh, Intrinsic connection between the priesthood and the Eucharist is something that uh, St. Thomas is alluding to in this fourth verse, um, that it was given to the assembly of the brethren, 12 in number, the apostles to whom the Eucharist was committed, and in, that, in the act of doing that, our Lord made them his priests. And then verses 5 and 6 sort of conclude this first part of the hymn with a, a kind of coda. Let praise be full and sounding, let the jubilations of the soul be joyous and becoming. For that solemn day is now being celebrated, on which is commemorated the first institution of this table. He's referring again to the Feast of Corpus Christi, which this sequence was written for, a feast which brings the church back, in a sense, to Holy Thursday. And this is uh, something that's, I guess, helpful for all of us to think about as we, as we live the liturgical year. The Feast of Corpus Christi is, in a sense, a chance for the church to go back and reflect more on what was all happening during Holy Week. There's so much happening during Holy Week, you simply can't take it all in. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, of d during the Sacred Triduum on Holy Thursday, on Good Friday, on Holy Saturday, of coming to the end of those days and thinking there's just, there's so much more that I could have contemplated and, and reflected upon in these days. Uh, the, the mystery of what happened at the Last Supper and all that our Lord said and did then, and all that he did and underwent in his passion and the words that he said upon the cross, a couple of days is, is too short to, to reflect on that. And so the church uh, instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi so that there would be another time in the year when we could sort of go back to what happened on Holy Thursday and, and reflect on it more deeply and, and unpack more fully the significance of it. And then in, in the seventh verse, the, St. Thomas moves into reflecting in a sort of systematic way on the different aspects of the mystery of the Eucharist. And he starts off with something which connects very well to uh, uh, the last talk that we heard, which uh, summed up very well the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is something that St. That Thomas really begins his, his Eucharistic theology here with. At this table of the new king, the new Pasch, that is the new Passover, of the new law, puts an end to the ancient Pasch, the ancient Passover. The new supplants the old, truth puts to flight the shadow, day banishes night. So this is a theme that runs through a lot of what St. Thomas wrote in the Office of Corpus Christi and, and the Mass of Corpus Christi, um, that the Eucharist is the new Passover, which replaces, if we understand that correctly, uh, I'll say more about that, replaces the old Passover. So what this means, first of all, is that if we want to understand the Eucharist, we have to understand the type which preceded it. Um, from, the, from the very beginning, St. Thomas gives us the Eucharist in the light of the Old Testament type that prepared for it and, and um, in which we need to look at in order to fully understand what's going on in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, as Dr. Mazzaro said in the, in the last talk, 
the Old Testament and the New Testament are not two, two separate revelations. It's all inspired. And the God to whom Jesus prays in the New Testament, the God whom he reveals to his followers, is the God of the Old Testament. That's the only God that he knew. And it's an analogous thing is, is true with the Holy Eucharist. The, the, there's, um, there's one continuous history of salvation, which begins with these Old Testament types of the Passover lamb, of the sacrifice of Isaac, of the manna in the desert. And this finds its fulfillment in the Holy Eucharist. But if we want to understand what our Lord is talking about in John chapter 6, it doesn't make a lot of sense if we don't have the Exodus account of the manna to refer to. Speaking about uh, our Lord as the Paschal lamb doesn't make any sense if we don't have the Paschal lamb in Exodus to refer to. So what what these verses tell us is that we have to look at the Old Testament in order to understand what's happening in the Eucharist. And at the same time, uh, also as Dr. Mazars pointed out in the last talk, Christ is the hermeneutical key to all of Scripture. That if we want to f- properly understand what's going on in the Old Testament, although we can't bypass the literal sense, and we have to deal with that and, and use the tools that can help us to understand what the unerring truth is that the author was seeking to convey, even if it was limited and incomplete, all of that truth is only going to make sense in the light of Christ. Only in the light of Christ do we see, ultimately, what everything in the Old Testament was about. And this is what St. Thomas is getting at in verse 8. The new supplants the old, truth puts to flight the shadow, day banishes night. Now this sort of language um, is somewhat unfashionable uh, today, I suppose, because it, it can be seen um, as anti- anti-Semitic. You know, if we say that, well, the, the old is being put to flight, um, by, by the New Testament, some can say, well, you know, well, this is this is snobbish and chauvinistic of Christians, you know, saying that you know the Old Testament's no good. You know, we Christians, you know, know what it's all about. Uh, is, isn't this anti-Semitic? Doesn't this you know, um, encourage an uncharitable attitude towards our Jewish brethren? But this. If we understand it properly, it's not a put down of the Old Testament. It's not saying that the Old Testament was was bad. That the Old Testament God is is a different God, um, a mean, jealous God. Uh, so Dr. Mazzaro has kind of treated all of that very, very well. That no, we're talking about one and the same God. And yet, we can only fully understand what God is doing in the Old Testament when we see its fulfillment in Christ in the New Testament. And so, things like the sacrifice of Isaac and the manna in the desert, and the Passover lamb only reach their full meaning. We only see what God was really intending with those things when we see the mystery of the Eucharist. All of that was a preparation for this. And so there are aspects of the Old Testament that, in a sense, do pass away. All of the ceremonial prescriptions of the old law that we find in uh, the latter part of Exodus and in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Many Christians have a hard time with those parts of the Bible. They might be reading through the Old Testament, and then they come to those books, and they're like, what does this have to say to me today? What, what, what value is there for my soul in reading about how they carried out the sacrifices uh, in, in the wilderness and in, in the Jewish temple? Well, it's not simply a historical narrative of, well, this is what they were doing then, although it is that. But the ultimate meaning of it is that all of this was to prepare for the coming of Christ. All of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to their fulfillment in Christ. And so after Christ has offered the definitive sacrifice and after he's instituted the Eucharist, then the ceremonial aspects of the old law do pass away. They no longer have the same value now that they did then because their point 
when God instituted them, was to prepare for the definitive fulfillment of them. And so in that sense, while the Old Covenant is not revoked, it is, we can say, it's, it's fulfilled by the New Covenant. And so certain many of the particular aspects of what God asked ceremonially in the Old Covenant no longer applies because it's, it's fulfilled its purpose. But now that the reality has come, the image which pointed to it is no longer necessary. So having talked about the relationship between the Old Testament types and the reality, in verses 9 and 10, St. Thomas tells us what this reality is. And verses 9 and 10, I suppose, are the, the crux of the, of the, entire, the entire hymn, the, the, the essence of the Church's Eucharistic faith. What Christ did at that supper, the same he commanded to be done in remembrance of him. The Eucharist is based on Jesus' command to do what he did in memory of him. And this is why in every Mass that command is repeated after the words of consecration. Uh, also, our Lord's words commanding us to do this in his memory are repeated as well. So memory is, is an extremely important thing in, in talking about the Eucharist. Memory is the opposite of forgetfulness. And we see throughout the scriptures that forgetfulness is the source of infidelity. It's when Israel becomes forgetful of God's works that she turns to idolatry and sin of all kinds. And the role of the prophets was to make people mindful of what God had done so that they could amend their ways. And in order to stave off any forgetfulness of the definitive act of salvation that Jesus worked for us upon the cross, he gave us the Eucharist as the perpetual memorial of his sacrifice. The Eucharist is, in its essence, the memorial of Christ's passion and death. So St. Paul, in the oldest treatment of Eucharistic doctrine is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, one of the oldest writings in the New Testament, probably written in the 50s uh, of, the, of the first century. And St. Paul says there, as, so, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you announce the death of the Lord until he comes. So this is what the Eucharist does. It announces the Lord's death. It is the memorial of Christ's passion and death. But what do we mean here by memorial? Is it simply a memorial in the way that the Passion Play at Omar Amargao is a memorial of Christ's Passion? I mean, that's, that's a pretty effective, you know, very, very impressive memorial. We have the you know, Passion Play. You see that it's very dramatic. Is it a memorial in the way that a painting or, or a crucifix is, is a memorial of Christ's Passion? Is it a memorial the way that we put up a monument, a, a plaque on the wall? This is a, a memorial to a battle that was fought on, on this spot. Is it a memorial in the way that the telling of a story is a memorial? We, we, we tell a story and so we keep alive the memory of something that happened. All of those things are insufficient to, uh, to explain what we mean, what the church means, what our Lord means when he says, do this in memory of me. It's not just about psychologically making us think about what happened on the, on the cross. It's something much more than that. And the next verse goes on to tell us what exactly this memorial consists in. Taught by his sacred precepts, we consecrate bread and wine into the victim of salvation. That's really the essence of the doctrine of the Eucharist in, in one short verse there. Taught by his sacred precepts, taught by, by Christ's own command, we consecrate bread and wine into the victim of salvation. So the memorial of Christ's death consists in bread and wine being consecrated into the true victim of our salvation. In 
And in doing this, St. Thomas sums up the whole question of the Mass as a sacrifice. And this is something that we can go on for hours and hours about, and great minds have, have expended lots of ink on trying to dissect what exactly it means to say that, that the Mass is a sacrifice. But it, it's, all, it's expressed very succinctly here. We consecrate bread and wine into the victim of salvation. In the Holy Mass, the bread is consecrated into the body of Christ. It, it becomes our Lord's body. The wine becomes his blood. And in giving us our Lord's body and his blood, sacramentally separated, we have our Lord present sacramentally in the state in which he was when he died upon the cross. His lifeless body upon the cross, separated from his blood, which had been completely poured out after his side was pierced, the blood and water flowed out. Our Lord had shed all of his blood for us. And so this separation of his body and blood, which took place in his death, this is sacramentally made present upon the altar in the Holy Mass. Now, does, does this mean that our Lord is suffering again all of the torments of his passion when, when the Mass is offered? Of course not. Uh, as the, the Council of Trent was very uh, keen to point out, as, as catechisms have, have continued to repeat ever since, the Mass is an unbloody sacrifice. Unbloody in the sense that there is no actual physical death taking place. Our Lord is now in glory, and so he dies no more. This was the, the Protestant objection against the Mass in, in the 16th century and ever since. Uh, you Catholics are claiming that our Lord is suffering again. He, he died once for all, so how can you say that he's being sacrificed again? Well, he's not being sacrificed again in a bloody way. His death is not being repeated in, in a physical way. But sacramentally, what we have upon the altar is his body and his blood. There's, there's no, in, in the natural order, there's no death taking place, but in the sacramental order, on, on a, a different level of reality from, from the reality that we see with our bodily eyes, there is this separation taking place of his, his body, his blood. And so therefore, there's present upon the altar our Lord sacramentally making present what he did upon the cross. And so the Mass is thus not just any old memorial calling to mind what happened back then, but it's, it's a memorial because it actually objectively puts before us the very same reality that took place upon the cross. And so the Mass itself is also a sacrifice as, the, as our Lord's death on the cross was. It's the same priest because it is Jesus himself who makes it to happen that his, his body and blood are present upon the altar in this way. It's the same victim. It is our Lord's body and blood, the same body and blood that were present upon the cross. So it's the same victim, the same priest. So it is, it is indeed the same sacrifice, but it's being offered in a different way, in an unbloody manner, which doesn't involve physical suffering and death. But it's a real sacrifice all the same. And this is done so that all the grace that was merited upon the cross can then be applied in the church for the forgiveness of those sins that we daily commit. Our Lord merited on the cross all the grace that could ever be needed until the end of time. But he applies that grace to us daily through the offering of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And all of this is prior to our reception of the Eucharist. The, the, the essence of what happens at the Mass is this making present of Christ's sacrifice through the separate consecration of his body and his blood. And then following upon that, we 
receive his body and blood, and that's a, a fuller uh, outpouring of grace into us. But the, the essence of the sacrifice is there in the consecration, even if only the priest were to, to receive Holy Communion at the Mass, it would still be uh, a sacrifice of infinite value because the primary end of the Mass is to offer to God the sacrifice that he deserves through making present here and now what our Lord did upon the cross. He goes on in the next two verses to talk more about this transformation that takes place. This is the dogma given to Christians, that bread is changed into flesh and wine into blood. What thou dost not understand, what thou dost not see, a lively faith confirms in a supernatural manner. This describes the essence of transubstantiation, that the substance of the bread and wine are converted into the substance of Christ's body and blood, such that nothing remains of the substance of the bread and wine. So this requires us to make some philosophical distinctions between what we call substance and accident. Substance is what something is, an accident, in the philosophical sense, is a property that inheres in a substance, but which is not itself the essence of what the thing is. Now, in most cases, accidents and substances are pretty closely bound up together. Being a human being means that you have certain properties of, of rationality, of having the characteristics that a human body has, and so forth. But in the Eucharist, there's something very unusual that happens. A substance changes. The bread becomes Christ's body, but the accidents don't change. So what it looks like doesn't change. What it smells like, what it tastes like, what it feels like doesn't change. But what the dogma of transubstantiation tells us is that none of those things pertain to the essence of what it is. Even though it looks the same as it did before, it's become something completely different. But we only know that, as verse 12 tells us, we only know that because of faith. We only know that because our Lord said, this is my body. And he who has divine power over the substance of all things has power to change the substance of the bread without changing its accidents. And this is the great, the great mystery of faith, that the substance changes, but the accidents don't. And, but, but because the substance has changed, it's not really breaded, even though it has all the properties of bread. Sometimes, um, un unfortunately, um, you know, people will talk very casually and say, um, you know, there, there's ministers of Holy Communion have the, the chalices but the wine. Well, it's, it's not wine, sorry. Um, it's, it's not even consecrated wine. It looks like wine. It has the species of wine, but it's the blood of Christ. Um, it's, not, it's not bread. It's not even special bread, consecrated bread, holy bread, blessed bread. No, it's the body of Christ, even though it looks like bread. Verses 13 14 goes on to talk about the fact that under different species, in externals only and not in reality, wondrous substances lie hidden. Flesh is blood, if flesh is food, blood is drink. Nevertheless, Christ remains entire under each species. This is the doctrine of what's called concomitance. We have the bread becoming his body, the wine becoming his blood. But because our Lord, in reality, is glorious in heaven at the right hand of the Father, now his body cannot be separated from his blood. It was separated upon the cross, and sacramentally he makes his body and blood present in these two different species to represent what happened upon the cross. But the one can never be really separated from the other, so that where his body is, there is also his blood and his soul and his divinity, and vice versa. Where his blood is, there is his body and also his soul and his divinity. That doesn't mean that the bread changes into Christ's divinity. 
it changes into his body. But his body now is inseparably united to his soul and his divinity. This truth of concomitance is why, uh, for instance, Holy Communion can be distributed under only one kind. It often is distributed under both kinds. Uh, in the Eastern churches, that's always been the case. In the Latin church, for many, many centuries, it, it was always distributed to the faithful under only one kind, only under the appearance of bread. But there was no loss being suffered by the faithful in, in this practice because in receiving our Lord's body, they also received along with it, his blood, his soul, his divinity, because all of these things are, are inseparably bound together through, uh, again, the, the technical term that's used is concomitance. The, the fact that because of the hypostatic union, um, our Lord's divinity is always present where his humanity is, and because he is now gloriously reigning in heaven, uh, his body and his blood and his, his human soul are never separated from each other. goes on in verses 15 and 16 to talk about the fact that no matter how many people are receiving the Blessed Sacrament, Christ is not divided and he's not diminished. It doesn't matter whether it's one person receiving or thousands. As he multiplied the loaves, he took five loaves and, and two fish and, and multiplied them, and somehow everyone was able to eat from these five loaves and two fish. That was an image of what he was going to do with the Eucharist, that his body is, in a sense, uh, Multiplied, it's not multiplied because it's only one. He has only one body, but he makes it possible for everyone to partake of this body without it being in any way diminished. And then in 17 and 18, he gives kind of some of the, um, the more sobering aspects of, of the, the doctrine of the Eucharist. The good receive him, the bad receive him, but with what unequal consequences of life or death? It is death to the unworthy, life to the worthy. Behold, then, of a like reception, how unlike may be the result. From the very, again, the earliest statement of Eucharistic doctrine we have in St. Paul in 1 Corinthians explicitly talks about this problem. Unworthy reception of the Eucharist leading to death, to spiritual death, and even apparently in, in 1 Corinthians to physical death. He who eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks condemnation upon himself. And this is why the church has always insisted that to receive the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin is spiritually deadly. The church's canons, uh, even today, canons 915, 916, talk about the need for the proper dispositions to receive the Holy Eucharist. And this is, uh, again, as Dr. Mazaros was saying in the, in the, the last talk, it, when God is stern with us, it's, it's because he loves us. It's, it's for our good. Uh, it's because he warns us against things that are, that are harmful for us. And so, so too, in, in this sort of warning that we have in verses 17 and 18, we're told how we have to approach the Eucharist if it's to bear the fruit of life rather than the fruit of death. Finally, in the 19 and 20, sort of conclude the theological treatment by saying, when the sacrament is broken, doubt not, but remember that there is just as much hidden in a fragment as there is in the whole. Our Lord is present whole and entire in each part of the sacred host, in each drop of the precious blood, and so even a small part of it contains the whole of him, which is why each small part has to be treated with with the reverence and, and the adoration which is due even to the whole. This is why the church is very careful with the sacred vessels, the sacred linens. In our own time, uh, there was the instruction Redemptioni Sacramentum, which reminded uh, 
priests in particular of, of the, the care that has to be taken with these things because even in the smallest part of the host, our Lord is present. The fathers of the church talk about this. Um, Tertullian, Origen, Cyril of Jerusalem describe the reverence with which the faithful have to be careful not to lose even the smallest part of what's given to them because they, he says if you were given gold dust, you wouldn't want any part of it to fall to the ground because it's so precious. He says so, so too, you, you don't want to lose even the smallest part of this precious thing which is given to you in the Holy Eucharist. So having talked about the sacrifice of the Mass and about transubstantiation and about concomitance and about the presence of our Lord in every part of the host and about the need for the proper dispositions to, to receive him, having treated all of these things, and the last four verses of the hymn go back into uh, praise and prayer. Ece panis angelorum, the bread of angels is made the food, the food of earthly pilgrims. The Eucharist is the bread of angels because the angels in heaven are constantly contemplating the one whom we receive in the Holy Eucharist. The life of the angels, we could say, is sustained by contemplating our Lord. And we, upon this earth, contemplate him in a hidden way in the Blessed Sacrament. And in that way, we share already the life of the angels. Verse 22 talks about the types that we referred to earlier. And he gives three in particular. The sacrifice of Isaac, being a prefigurement of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The paschal lamb, whose blood marked the doors to keep away the destroying angel, as another image of Christ's sacrifice. And then the manna given in the wilderness is an image of the Holy Eucharist as our spiritual food. And then the last two verses, uh, he addresses uh, Jesus as the good shepherd, and that's, that's not by accident. Bone pastor, the Latin word pastor, which means shepherd, literally means one who feeds, one who nourishes, one who gives pasture. So when we speak of Jesus as the good shepherd, that's a, a Eucharistic image. Jesus is the good shepherd because he leads us, his sheep, to the green pastures, we are pastored upon his body and blood. And then finally, in the last verse, we ask that we might be made co-heirs and companions of the heavenly citizens, commensales, sharers at the table, sharers at the heavenly table. So this is the, uh, the anagogical sense of the Eucharist. The Eucharist points us to the heavenly banquet that we hope to share in. In receiving the Holy Eucharist, we already begin to live the life of heaven. Uh, the life of grace here on earth is the beginning of the life of glory. What we will be in heaven, that we already are in this, uh, in this life, we are, are already sharing in God's life and uh, united to him in the Holy Eucharist. We just don't see the full glory of it revealed as we will in the beatific vision. I think I've already gone over my... Uh, how many, um, should probably stop now for, for questions, is that right? Yeah, so... so um, yeah, so that, that's uh, just a little bit about this, this sequence in which St. Thomas gives us a little su summary of the Church's faith in the Eucharist. So. Well, you have charity as well as faith. Uh, <laughs> any questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose as with as with much evangelization, it depends on on, on your audience and kind of where they're at. But I think something that um, that seems, I think, to connect with a lot of people today is um, 
postmodern man suffers a great deal from from isolation, uh, even though uh, you know paradoxically the, the social media claim to, to connect us with one another, and yet there's an existential isolation that can kind of be masked by by all of the the noise with which we fill our lives. And I think many people today are instinctively drawn to adoration of the Blessed Sacrament because um, they sense that there's a presence there, there's a person there that they can connect with in a real face-to-face way. Um, in, in the Holy Eucharist, because it is the living bread, it's not just a thing, but it's, it's a living bread, um, we can enter into a, a personal relationship uh, in a very immediate and concrete way. Um, it's not just kind of God out there somewhere. It's not just kind of God who I hear about in the Bible, but it's God right here, present uh, in, in the Holy Eucharist. Now that doesn't um, that doesn't begin to, I suppose, give all the intellectual reasons why somebody should believe in, in, in the Eucharist. But I, but I think, um, as I was talking to a convert once uh, about the Holy Eucharist, and he said, he said, I didn't always believe it. He says, but as soon as I knew what it was, I knew that if it was true, it was extremely important. Uh, and so I think that that's, um, the Eucharist is one of those things that even just to present to, to, to someone who doesn't have the faith uh, or doesn't have the fullness of the faith, what it is that we believe about the Eucharist, uh, they might not believe it right away, but I think they should be able to recognize that if this is true, it's extremely important. And and it, ends, and it answers a deep existential need that every human heart has uh, for, for, for communion, for, for a relationship. And the Eucharist offers us that communion, that relationship in a personal way, in a very concrete way with God himself. Um, so I, um, I suppose that's, it, it's not so much a, a, an intellectual approach as a, an existential approach, a, a personal approach. But, but, but I think that, that may be where the Eucharist speaks most deeply to many people today. Yes, it's certainly true. Um, obviously, you know, sin of any kind, mortal sin, requires knowledge of its its sinfulness, and so we can we can hope that you know many people who who are not properly disposed to be receiving the Holy Eucharist um, aren't fully aware of that, and so aren't aren't committing sacrilege in the full sense. Um, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't change the fact that objectively, you know, what what they're doing is is not good and not not spiritually helpful to them. So, so I think it's something that um, it has to be addressed very um, very sensitively and very prudently, um, and it pertains more to to you know the pastors of the church to 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 find the way to to inform the consciences of the faithful about these things. But it is the, the importance of the proper dispositions for receiving the Holy Eucharist is certainly um, an aspect of the church's teaching that, that deserves to be known uh, because it's, uh, you know, for many people, when they come to be aware of that, it, it causes them to, to take seriously the need to reform certain things in their lives. If they, they may have been, I mean, I've, I've had the experience as a priest of people who for a very long time were, were receiving the Eucharist without being aware that they needed to repent and confess certain behaviors that they were engaged in in order to be able to, to fruitfully partake of the Eucharist. And once they were aware of that, then that was the, the incentive to them to, to go to confession and to begin 
seeking to, to leave behind some, you know, the, the patterns of sin that they were caught in. So, you know, as with, with everything in the church's teaching, if, um, if it's explained with love and, and, and with, with compassion, it, it's, it's a great act of charity to someone to, to let them know what the truth is, because uh, if they don't know it, then they can't, um, they can't begin to live it. Yeah. Yes, Redemptioni Sacramentum. So it was, um, let's see now, it would have been in about 2000, 2004, somewhere around there. Um, it was a, a document of, it followed upon St. John Paul II's last encyclical, which was Ecclesia de Eucharistia. That was his encyclical on the Eucharist, which sort of concluded his pontificate, really. Um, and a follow-up document to that encyclical was uh, Redemptioni Sacramentum, which was a document of the Congregation for Divine Worship, giving kind of concrete particulars of a whole host of practices that were going on in different parts of the church that, that were not properly respecting the mystery of the Eucharist. And so, uh, so I think, I've, I imagine, uh, I haven't looked for it recently, but I believe it's still there on the Vatican website, Redemptioni Sacramentum, it's called. Well, it, I mean, it was addressed to the whole church. I mean, many of the things in it would be things that primarily clergy would need to be aware of because they're the ones who are involved in the, the administration of the Eucharist. But it's, it's, it's a, a worthwhile document for any Catholic to be familiar with, I think, um, but because it's, um, at least when it came out, I, I know that the, the, it spoke to a lot of things that I saw going on around. And, and so, um, you know, the... the the law of prayer is the law of belief. So what happens in the liturgy affects the way that we believe. So, so if there's faulty liturgical practice, that, that's going to uh, impact doctrine and vice versa. So, so in that sense, it's, it's important for, uh, you know, for all Catholics to be aware of, uh, at least in a general way, of those things. Yes? Uh, how did you respond to the objection, you Catholics, you're accountable as you lead your God? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, th so there too, um, we have to dis distinguish between, yes, scholastic theology, you always distinguish. Uh, so um, our Lord's body and blood are present, really present in the Eucharist, but the manner of their presence is different from when he was upon earth. Um, and that's something that um, at times, you know, it, you know even some spiritual writers uh, can, can use language which, which might um, not be quite precise, um, and when, you know, in, in, in speaking of our Lord, you know, being immolated upon the altar, it's true that he is immolated upon the altar, sacrificed upon the altar, but in a, in a sacramental way, not in a bloody way. And similarly, when we, when we, we eat his flesh, we do eat his flesh, and so we, we eat the sacred species which have become his body, but he's present there not in a, in a, a natural way, but in a, a sacramental way, which doesn't mean it's not real. Uh, so, so I think in in the modern world we're not we're not good with dealing with multiple layers of reality, and and so we, we think if it's real that means I can sense it. So if I can't sense it, then it's not real. And, and if I'm if I'm eating his body, then I must be eating it in a way that's bloody and, and cannibalistic. But but no, there there's sacramental reality which is no less real, but but which is not bloody. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 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 Very much so. Yes. 
Right. So, so the um, if you look at the whole history of the Western Church, um, there certainly were many eras in which communion was administered under both kinds, uh, but it, it wasn't always. And um, in the Middle Ages, and especially after the Council of Trent, it became much more codified that communion was administered to the faithful only under one kind. And, and the reasons for that were, were partly to emphasize the truth of concomitance, which was being denied by Protestants. Who, there, there were the, the Hussites, a late medieval heresy that said, well, you have to receive under both kinds, otherwise you're not getting the full thing. And the church, sort of to make a point, said, no, um, the, the, each, each species, it's, it's the whole Christ. But also very practically, um, at least in my own experience as a priest, there, there are great inconveniences that, that, that have to be dealt with in, in distributing Holy Communion under both kinds because uh, the, the danger of profanation is, can be much greater. Um, and therefore, uh, there was good reason that, that the church was, was, was cautious about that. Um, at the time of the Second Vatican Council, it, it, there was uh, permission given for communion under both kinds in the Western Church as well, primarily because it's a fuller, a fuller expression of the, the, the sacramental sign that's present there. And that's undeniably the case. Our Lord instituted the sacrament under, under both kinds to show forth his death. And there's something um, in a way that's fitting about receiving both of the, both of the species. Um, I will have to say just in my own, before uh, becoming an, an enclosed monk, I spent a uh, number of years in diocesan ministry, and it is certainly not always easy to ensure the proper reverence and, and care for the sacred species when communion is ministered under both kinds. Um, and so, uh, it, personally, I have often appreciated the wisdom uh, of, of the church's experience uh, of you know what, why certain things were, were limited or, or curtailed. Um, it doesn't mean it's a matter of divine law, it's a matter of the, the church's prudential judgment, but, but if it... Um, you know, if it is given under both kinds, it needs to be done in a way that's that's fitting and that's not going to have the danger of, of profanation. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, we should probably stop there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just have lunch now. So Certainly. Mind if we wrap, yeah. Uh, those kinds of stuff. Yeah. Please put them in the box, and we'll we'll have it out later. Yeah. And uh, thank so, you. thank you so much, Father, thank for you that very much. fantastic talk. Thank you.